there used to be an orchard, sadly is no longer there, near where I lived when I was growing up, that you could go into the orchard and pick apples and then come out and pay for what you'd picked. Um, but they also sold preserves and stuff like that. And uh, my sister and I called their preserves apple sunshine because they were just so, so beautiful in this jar of this absolute, like, like a jar of just golden afternoon light, you know. And I remember what it tasted like, but what's, what stays in my memory the most is the, the sight of it. Um, and that association between the way it looked and the, that, the, the fact that we called it light and that when we spread it on toast we felt like we were eating light, you know. Yeah. Um, that sort of thing has, has always been, um, I honestly, I think it's sort of a mode of composition for me. Uh, Hello, my name is Amal Al-Mahdar. I am a writer of short fiction, poetry, criticism, and I am presently at WISCON being guest of honor, which is really awesome. And uh, my, my preferred pronouns are she and her. Amal Matar's stories and poems have appeared in such places as Lightspeed, Uncanny, Strange Horizons, and Apex. Her articles and reviews in such places as the Los Angeles Times and NPR Books. Her 2016 story, Seasons of Glass and Iron, published in the Starlit Wood Anthology, and written in the hopes of giving her seven-year-old niece a fairy tale in which not romance, but friendship, and in particular the friendship between two women drove the story, has so far this year won the Locus, Hugo, and Nebula Awards for Best Short Story. I just found myself imagining, you know, imagine a woman in a ballad mourning, but having another woman standing next to her holding her and how completely that changes the dynamic. Like there's such a vast disconnect between my experience of literally every important thing in my life uh, and the way that important things in people's lives get represented in stories mm. where friendships don't seem to be there. And they're not, it's, it's like they're just distraction, distractions from a plot or grace notes <laughs> or, yeah. they're not integral, they're not, um, they're not narrative, forces. Recently, Amal took some time out of her very busy schedule as guest of honor at WizCon and sat down with us to talk about, among other things, moons, musicals, orchards, friendship, Star Trek The Next Generation, the wonderful wobbliness of time and space, and those little bits of magic you find as you travel along the way, there and back again. Just the, the idea of honey or, or of making wine or anything that involves taking something and transforming it into something mm -hmm. else. That is what we do when we write, you know, yeah. um, when we take any kind of experiences that we've had and we filter them through ourselves and we turn them into story. That that process of transformation is something that I it's, it's a metaphor that I feel I'm always reaching for. Um, that has a lot of, uh, of different applications. And I love to think about things in that way. And it comes very naturally to me. I'm Chris Camerud. And this is a Storylogical Pocket interview with Amal El Mota. So I was going to ask you, mm -hmm. as one does, where where you grew up. Well, I was so I was born in Canada, um, and my family is from Lebanon. And when I was um, six and a half, because these distinctions matter when you're six and a half. Yeah. Uh, when I was six and a half, we. Um, we moved to Lebanon for two years, and uh, um, I really feel like a 
big part of my childhood was there. It was a huge change and it was amazing. There was, there's a lot that I loved. I feel like that time in my life is actually where I discovered a lot of my current fandoms. Mm-hmm. Um, and as much as uh, I, I read The Hobbit when I was in Lebanon um, and fell in love with, uh, I discovered um, Doctor Who via novelizations that uh, my dad's cousin Michael had. Uh, so and they were the they were the Ter- I think they were Terence Dick Terence Dick's novels and uh, uh, like one of them was Planet of the Daleks and I didn't know it was a TV show I just oh, I, I I thought these were books I right. thought this up until the new reboot with Chris Eccleston where I genuinely said to actual other humans oh I remember these books from my childhood I guess they're making them into a TV show. And, uh, and and was very gently and lovingly corrected. Uh, but yeah, so I, I loved Doctor Who, the books. Um, and I, what else? The, um, I discovered how to do research in Lebanon because I, uh, we, we lived in an apartment building in uh, Ras Beirut and uh, down the hall from us, there was um, this woman named Madame Beiruti and she had a collection of uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. And I was just flipping through it because I liked books. I liked anything with pages. And uh, I happened upon the entry for mythology. And this seemed really cool. And I was reading down and like it was full of stories. Uh, and at the end of the entry for mythology, there was an alphabetical list of all like heroes, gods, all sorts of stuff. And I methodic- quite methodically for I think six and a half or seven mm-hmm. by this point, um, made a list and took every other Encyclopedia Britannica that had those listings in it uh, and just read the entries for each one of the things in mythology uh, and acquired a not too terrible like education mm-hmm. at a tender age about mythology um, from that and, and learned uh, in a very interesting kind of piecemeal way. Um, so I think there was a lot of making connections between them uh, on my own but it was mm. it was awful so I did that when I was in Lebanon so all of this was um, so just so many of the things in which I, I kind of root and center my identity happened there I wrote my first poem there do you remember what the poem was about I know the poem by heart <laughs> it was about the moon and uh, I had just recently read um, a, a sort of child's version of Midsummer Night's Dream mm. and, but they'd preserved all the these and the thous in it uh, and so I, I decided I was going to take it upon myself to apostrophize the moon in this way. So, O moon, O moon, why art thou so pale? The sun is large and golden, but you are as white as hail. Art thou ill from the cold and dark of night? Or does your face turn pale, thinking of your plight? I wasn't consistent. Um, <laughs> but whether you are golden or whether you are pale, I think you are beautiful and not as harsh as hail. That's, yeah. That was the poem. Very beautiful. Oh my gosh, well, and, thank you. Well, I mean, uh, I mean I'm imagine, but I'm partly imagining you at seven, <laughs> like, you know, speaking this out the window. Ah! I was uh, a precocious child. When my parents saw the poem, they were very quick to tell me that I, you know, came from a long lineage of poets, and my grandfather had been a poet, and... Um, and, uh, and this was a, an important calling, you know, that to be a poet was to speak for those who couldn't speak and and you know uh, use your power for love and justice and stuff like that um and i was very excited by this and i i feel really grateful for that 
that they they gave me that idea of a poet instead of I don't know a slightly more British romantic emo mm. sort of situation like decorating your own emotions yeah 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 do you consider yourself romantic uh what what case of r are we talking here um whichever one you feel most strongly about <laughs> um <laughs> i don't i mean i mean if the the, the kind of received aesthetic of romantic mm-hmm. i guess i i feel drawn to it very much um i admire it very much uh especially in other people um uh, any any romanticist worth their salt will be quick to sort of tear apart the word of what exactly do you mm-hmm. mean by romantic? And, uh, you know, we're at a place where we talk about romanticisms now and stuff. Uh, so I don't, I don't know. It, it feels, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be, I wouldn't want to be limited by mm. a term that I haven't fully explored the edges of. So. Right. Yeah. Why did you decide to study it? Oh, uh, the, because, um, Oh, so many reasons. My my father introduced me to um, a lot of romantic poetry. Uh, like basically, my my father in Lebanon had been educated in poetry via a Norton anthology of of some yeah. some older right. edition, kind of uh, like you and the encyclopedias. Yes, yeah. Uh, so so the poetry that I learned quite early. He he was reading me the rhyme of the ancient mariner, kind of as a bedtime story. Uh, not all of it, I think he would, <laughs> but, right. but it's, yeah, it's like really quite scary. Yeah, like the Princess Bride, he just left out Yeah, he just left parts. out the, the boring and the scary parts. Yeah. The bit with the hermit never really made any sense to me, uh, but, uh, but, but he had lines that he really loved and he would tell me about. So his uh, enthusiasm for some lines of, of, of poetry mm. were uh, romantic poetry and they were also Shakespeare. So from, from those two things, like those were two paths that I could follow with some guidance right um and I really uh and and I loved that I loved that there was magic in these poems um and when I would then like take myself to the library and look for more of the same I think the things that were grouped together were largely romantic as well Mm so I think it's just they had a more of a familiarity for me so they my interests went in that direction but also I was always interested in in magical things and in the occult and in um, the supernatural and uh, so I realized that that tends to get talked a lot about in Victorian period or in the Renaissance and stuff but there's a kind of interesting lacuna where the romantic period is concerned and I thought but but surely you know surely mm-hmm. there's the same thing here and I'd like to see more of that so so that's where I ended up focusing graduate work. Do you know Sarah Waters? Uh, I haven't uh, actually read her stuff, but I've I've had it recommended to me so often, and really really love to. Especially, I think Fingersmith was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Delia Sherman recommended us yeah. uh, to us Fingersmith at Clarion. It was mm-hmm. amazing. She wrote a book called Affinity that um, we studied in a Gothic class I took in my MFA. Oh. It talked about well, the way we discussed the book mm-hmm. was the idea that when you were in the occult, that you would. You could sort of spot people that shared your beliefs mm. and this idea that if you were at a seance and someone didn't believe and it didn't have the same affinity mm-hmm. it would mess up the magic right and we read it partly through a, a queer lens the mm. idea that you this affinity of identities um and i know you've talked about how important female friendship is yeah and i feel like sometimes when i'm reading your stories that there's a sense that there are certain things that bond people together that mm-hmm. are really important to you that mm-hmm. maybe aren't immediately expressible in words mm-hmm. but 
there? Yeah. Is that fair? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I, I think that one of the sort of quintessential fandom and con experiences is that just kind of click that you have mm. with someone um, during a 3 a.m. conversation that you don't want to end because you're just so delighted to have found someone with whom you can speak about all the things dearest to your heart or things in which you're interested. And um, that's an experience that I think we get less and less as we get older, um, but it's so formative. Uh, and uh, and that we take those formative friendships with us. And, and so like there's just a kind of preciousness to them. Uh, preciousness in the sense of like a, a valued thing as opposed right. to a, a baby bear. Ba- yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, so that, like that, that click, I think, can can be very mysterious and and numinous and wonderful. But everything that comes after that um, is also representable, you know, is all and is important and is not less important than the click. It's like the click is the means, but then mm-hmm. the friendship is the end. Uh, I get this when I um, I when I read uh, C.S.E. Cooney's fiction a lot. Um, she's one of my absolute favorite writers and favorite people and it just uh, she has this amazing knack for rewriting stories uh, in order to have like what if this were actually realistic where the women are concerned Um, and I imagine when I hear her read her work um, or or perform her work because she's also a a singer she uh, she has this way of just making me imagine more women there, where where a ballad will have you know a singular wailing, mm-hmm. upset, sad, or fierce, avenging, angry <laughs> woman. Um, All of the know, emotions need to be in the one. In the one, yeah. um, or you know, sisters are killing each other, or what have you. I just found myself imagining, you know, imagine a woman in a ballad mourning, but having another woman standing next to her, holding her. And how completely that changes the dynamic. Like, there's such a vast disconnect between my experience of literally every important thing in my life uh, and the way that important things in people's lives get represented in stories mm. where friendships don't seem to be there. It's, it's like they're just distraction, distractions from a plot or grace notes <laughs> or yeah. they're not integral. They're not, um, they're not narrative forces. Yeah. And... I feel so strongly that in my life, um, I, and I always have a moment of saying, sorry, husband, uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but in my life, all, all like my, so much of my life has been defined by my friendships and has been like all like my ups and downs, my hills and valleys emotionally and stuff have had to do with friendships, with the formation of them or the loss of them or the complication of them. Um, and it, it's baffling to me that this seems elided from representations of life uh that this thing that can be such a mainstay mm. of of existence you know and and joy and sadness and everything is just not there yeah. in stories did you form any theories as to why is like is it just sexism just there is partly that um i have a theory uh sparked off by something max godstone said okay. at some point that um just friend- you are you a buffy the musical fan yes like, okay Yes. Just said I've got a theory. And I'm yes. hearing that I'm it's here. a demon. <laughs> yes. Oh man, I love that. I yeah. do. It's so good. Um, no, I. Uh, so this thing that I, I that I bounced off of Max Gladstone, mm. uh, who is a very very dear friend, and um, 
we conclude together that friendship is sort of inherently anti-capitalist. Um, that, and a lot of our senses of narrative um, and uh, and storytelling are kind of implicated in in, in a really transactional mode yeah. of being. So a lot of romance gets represented as transactional, uh, whether it's something as uh, crass as you know, well, I buy you dinner and you owe me sex to something like, well, I'm going to, you know, perform all of these actions and I'll get the girl at the end, you know, Um, or I'll get the boy at the end or the boy will choose me or whatever. There's something very heterosexist about it, but I do find that this can carry over sometimes into queer narratives that I, in ways that I'd I'd like to Mm -hmm. examine more. But, um, examine more academically or in I'd, I'd like for fiction? us to examine oh, okay. them more like to to not basically yeah. just think that if you transpose the relationship mm-hmm. from like a heterosexual pairing into a queer yeah. one that it's going to fix some of those problems right. um, it fixes some problems narratively mm-hmm. speaking not all um, yeah. like in terms of power and balance and stuff like that that can sometimes yeah be yeah sometimes just having different genders interact messes with people's understanding exactly. yeah exactly um, but so there's a kind of transactional core to anything that is romantic, and I think that um, that's built into a lot of our expectations of how narratives go. Friendship, I firmly believe, um, is not that way. So friendship, if you think of a transactional relationship as ultimately being about trying to eliminate debt. Mm-hmm. So someone does a nice thing for you, um, and you you want to do a nice thing so that you're even, you know, yeah. then that means that you're you're trying to eliminate debt. You're trying to sever connections between you. Um, you want to be in a, in a state of kind of like equality. Mm-hmm. But another way of thinking of it, and the way that I kind of default to thinking of it where friendship is concerned, is that you do nice things for each other because you want to reinforce a bond. You want to... Um, you you constantly want that idea of not debt but connection mm-hmm. to be reinforced, and you reinforce this by giving each other your time. You reinforce this by um, uh, by supporting each other, even when you're not necessarily you know you're, you're the, the prime partner in your life and stuff like that. Um, there's there's a sense in which friendship just operates in in a way that can resist those ideas of tit for tat and stuff like that um where a sense of loyalty or um support or community nourishment or i don't know things like all all of these different things that are that are inimical to capitalism occur within friendship um and capitalism hasn't quite sunk its teeth into friendship in the same way that it has into romance Mm. um where so many things are commercial so many things you know does it motivate you? Because in, yes. the, in the speech you gave at the Nebulous, um, you talked about how Seasons of Glass of I- uh, and Iron. You say the name. Seasons of Glass and Iron. Thank you. <laughs> um, how you were trying to write a fairy tale, right? Yeah. Or for your... For my niece. Yeah. yeah. And I guess you found fairy tales wanting? I did. I... Um... I realized, and I mean, I know a lot of fairy tales. I like, I cut my teeth on them. You know, I grew up reading lots of fairy tale collections, mm-hmm. and um, and I realized I could only, with difficulty, think of fairy tales where where women were friends, where women talked to each other, uh, and where they weren't antagonists to each other in some way. 
I know they're there, but mm. um, but the fact that I could reach for ten stories of women waiting for rescue or women waiting to be chosen or women seeking husbands or uh, you know that sort of thing instead of a story of women setting out together to have adventures um, which is really what I wanted to mm. tell my seven-year-old niece you know who was asking me for a fairy tale it, it was it was very disturbing to me and it it and in that I mean I just remember in that moment I was like you know I'm just gonna make something up I'm gonna make something up because I really want her to know that there is room in fairy tales for girls to be friends a lot of fairy tales will allow us to imagine ourselves in adventures and allow ourselves to imagine ourselves you know proverbially defeating dragons and um and and all the important stuff that that brings us but the fact that absent from a lot of the lessons that you can take from fairy tale not necessarily in a moralizing sense but in a in a in a kind of imaginative participation mm -hmm. sense don't include friendship um really troubles me and the ones that have included friendship have stood out for me i i think of something like um you know ivan and the firebird uh, and his relationship with the wolf is is one of like strong friendship no idea what this is oh. but i will i will find it I'm, it's yeah. um it, there's a well I, if, so far as I remember, like there's a, a youngest son of uh, you know a, a, a Russian king, um, needs to go on this quest to find a firebird in order to secure his place in in the hierarchy. I'm gonna mm -hmm. I'm gonna misrepresent it's this, and angry fairy tale scholars are gonna write you emails. Um, but there's a there's <laughs> okay, a, you can always record a better explanation. Yeah. There's uh, a there's a okay. wolf who mm. is helping him, and it turns out. After spoilers, after a, a series of adventures, the wolf is um, another another prince who has been transformed mm -hmm. into the shape of a wolf. And before he sets out to help Ivan with all this stuff, he says, "I will help you on the condition that when we are done, you cut off my head and you cut off my feet and you uh, do something else with them and stuff." And the prince is like, "Okay, dude, whatevs." Uh, <laughs> And but over the course of the adventures, they become really good friends. Mm. And at the end, the wolf still says, "You have to do this thing for me. You have to do this very difficult, terrible thing." And Ivan weeps and doesn't want to. And uh, the wolf has to hold him to his promise, and he does. And the act of cutting off the wolf's head and hands and whatever and sprinkling them with holy water turns him back into a mm -hmm. prince. Um, but I was really, really moved by the fact that you know he'd come to love this wolf and and that he. Uh, uh, he, he didn't want to kill him, even though, yeah. you know, he sets out in the beginning to just want to accomplish his tasks. Um, and there, there's another instance of, uh, that, that comes to mind of um, the, uh, the Snow Queen has uh, Gerda, mm -hmm. who's the, the main character in the story, um, does actually meet a lot of women. Um, but, the, the, and, she, and they're, they're amazing. They're, she meets a, a robber girl who who loves her even though she's like a she's vicious the mm. robber girl and she's terrifying um and she kind of treats Gerda as her pet but uh it's it's still a very I don't know compelling relationship um there's an older woman who has a rose garden uh that sort of thing there's Gerda talks to a lot of other girls and in this way that is totally an exception but she's doing all of this in order to rescue a boy she starts out wanting to do this because they are friends. She is friends with this boy, and that's why she's setting out to do all this stuff. But if I'm not mistaken, they end up married. At, and and I was like, 
okay <laughs> all right that's fine and i'm, I'm not you know right. against against marriage by any means it's just that that friendship has its place and is important yeah. too and doesn't so often i see narratives that like validate the friendship by having it conclude in a marriage so it's like oh you see it was important mm-hmm. all along because in the end it became romantic right and it's like the romance is not the point like all of the other things are also the point so yeah. i don't find it i mean it definitely motivates me it's definitely something that makes me want to represent it more um as as well as i can as well as i have experienced it and for it to just be out there for all of the girls and women and also men and boys whose you know most important relationships in their lives are their friendships yeah so how important is sensation to you like in your life and stories it's very important um it's 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 very important i love food i really Um, love food um i'm a bit synesthetic uh so i've always associated you know some senses with other things and there used to be an orchard sadly is no longer there near where i lived when i was growing up that you could go into the orchard and pick apples and then come out and pay for what you would picked um but they also sold preserves and stuff like that and uh, my sister and I called their preserves apple sunshine because they were just mm. so, so beautiful in this jar, this absolute, like, like a jar of just golden afternoon light, you know. Um, and, uh, and I remember what it tasted like, but what's, what stays in my memory the most is the, the sight of it. Um, and that association between the way it looked and the, that, the, the fact that we called it light and that when we spread it on toast, we felt like we were eating light, you know. Yeah. Um, I Honestly, I think it's sort of a mode of composition for me uh, to, to write from the senses. And not just to write from the senses, but from the senses and translation. Hmm. So a sense of trying to create a kind of alchemy from what you yeah. receive. I'm really, hmm. really interested. And I've always been really interested in um, in in the transformation of one thing to another, um, what we distill, what we imbue with things. So mm. things like, I don't know if I'm, uh, I'm not a very good knitter, um, but uh, for a while I would take knitting to lectures with me um, and, and knit uh, a little bit during the lecture. And I always loved the idea that I was knitting the lecture up into the scarf, you know, right. that I'm sitting there and I'm doing this thing and I'm listening, but part of me is taking the things that I'm hearing and transforming them to the scarf or, you know, encoding them into the scarf. Um, just the, the idea of honey or, or of making wine or anything that involves taking something and transforming it into something mm-hmm. else. That is what we do when we write, you know, yeah. um, when we take any kind of experiences that we've had and we filter them through ourselves and we turn them into story. That, that process of transformation is something that I, it's, it's a metaphor that I feel I'm always reaching for um, that has a lot of, uh, of different applications and I love to think about things in that way and it comes very naturally to me. So yeah, the sensory is absolutely very important to me. There was a review you wrote, it was Binti mm-hmm. by Nadia Korafor and you mentioned I, uh, Joe Walton, mm-hmm. this quote about how pace is what defines genre yeah. more than tropes. Yes. Um, do, do your stories have a pace? Do you do you feel yourself locking into like, oh, okay, now I know this is one of my stories because things are progressing hmm. in my mind or on the page in a way that feels like me um, or one of the yous? The thing, <laughs> um, with every short story that I have written recently, I think I've tried to do something different. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and each one is an opportunity, I think, to like explore some 
something that's different. But the thing that I keep on coming back to is that 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 they have in common. I think is that um, I I think I try to write out of poetry sometimes. Like I, the thing that leads me into writing prose a lot of the time is very sensory, uh, and I kind of feel like I, I write my way out. Mm. Right, my way out. Sorry, um, I just—it uh, had to happen. Yeah. At least one Hamilton quote in this interview. I've deliberately not listened to the soundtrack album because it's coming to London in January, and I'm one of those people I just really get excited to not. That's I mean, it's totally okay. cool That's for you fine. to randomly okay. burst into Hamilton song. I'm not going to connect it to anything. Oh, it's okay. Uh, Are you? Do you have so tickets? Are you yeah, go we see have it? tickets. Uh, yeah. You're oh man, excited. you might actually get to see Lynn. You might actually get to see him. You think? You think he'll come to London? Think, oh, he's in London right now. He's living. He's living. Oh in yeah, London. I have not allowed myself. I'll just. He I'm has, just assuming that there will be other people. But if Lynn is there, I will. He be. has strongly hinted that he may just turn up to like play it for a night. Some nuts, you know. So oh. I would love to see it in London. I've only seen the the New York production, but not with the original cast, and I loved mm. it. Um, we got to see two Hamiltons for the price of one, more or less, because uh, Javier Munoz was uh, ill, so he only made it to the end of the first act, and they switched it up in the second mm-hmm. act. Um, with his name is Michael Luyo, Luoy, oh, I think. It's but, like yeah. Doctor Who. Yeah, I know, so right? They just reincarnated. He's reincarnated. It was, and and because Munoz was sick, um, I have absorbed <laughs> the soundtrack into my being. Uh-huh. So uh, it was a little bit difficult for me to see how differently he played it from Miranda. Yeah. Um, whereas Luoye, um was much closer to Miranda's performance so I found myself sort of retconning him in my head into the first mm-hmm. act which was very strange yeah. um, but very interesting um, especially because they they look nothing alike so it's just like this completely different Hamilton on stage Do you think you were always redoing stories in your head while you watched them? Because it, I feel like in Madeline there's that relationship that in some sense is imaginary mm-hmm. but then really it's completely not imaginary but there's this decision that even if it's imaginary it doesn't matter yeah uh, i feel like that maybe or i wondered if this was something that you have experienced in your life because the way you talk about retconning hamilton mm-hmm. and um you know the way fandom works where you love something so much that things are real mm-hmm. like i used to daydream about taking michael scott from the office like to disney world because really? I just felt like he would be so happy at Disney World and we'd have such a great time. Is this from the American office? Yeah, the American oh, office. Oh, I never saw that one. Um, yeah, I don't know if the British office guy would be as much fun, but oh, but gosh. maybe it would be better for him because he deserves it. But do you have a sense of when you began to watch stories and recreate them? Or was there? do you remember a sense of the characters in the stories being your friends? Oh, totally. I'm so, so much. Uh, I mean, when I was... When I was uh, very small, uh, I loved the Teenage Mutant Ninja, Ninja Turtles yeah. so much. And mm-hmm. you want to guess which one was my favorite? Do you want to just like hazard Raphael. a guess? Raphael. Nope. Donatello. Nope. Okay, well now there's only two left, so. Oh, want me to keep going yeah. to see if I get the last one? Yeah. Um, was it a turtle? Yes. Uh, was it a turtle? Okay. It wasn't a trick question. Okay. 
Um, <laughs> Although Splinter uh, was pretty great. Yeah, I was going to go Yeah, with Splinter next. I'll go with Michelangelo. Yes, okay. it was Michelangelo. Okay, Michelangelo was, it? was my favorite. Michelangelo was a party dude. Right, yeah. right. Love and of food. Love of food, yeah. And there was actually, to be fair, no reason why he should be my favorite considering my other interests. Donatello would have been a fair pick. Yeah. My sister's favorite was Raphael. I hated Raphael. I thought he was a jerk. Um, <laughs> it's too, too sarcastic. It's just so mean. He yeah. was just mean. He was always being mean. Whereas, I think this is what it was. Michelangelo was always nice. He was always mm-hmm. really kind. Yeah. He was really kind and really fun. And he was always happy. And he was always trying to be nice to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really liked that. And I wanted to marry Michelangelo. Okay. Yeah, he, he, I was like firmly convinced at the age of five mm-hmm. that... Um, uh, Michelangelo was going to to be married right. to me, that, that and that was, you know, just made made it's sense. Perfectly good. Yeah, yeah. and also uh, in in allegiance to Michelangelo, I loved all things orange, so I always ate my carrots and I drank okay. orange juice from an orange cup. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a very rich uh, fantasy life in in which, like Michelangelo and I were going to be married, and I mean, like you know, by married here. It, like I was five so I think really yeah. what I wanted was to be really good friends you know right um, yeah that's, that's yeah, yeah I rem- my sister and I have talked a lot about the movies we watched in the 80s like yeah. The Goonies yeah where like romance was there mm-hmm. but it was about the friendship yeah and it seems so sad that only movies about children had mm-hmm. that exactly so that's what yeah exactly like you were five and so yeah. you actually had more room to imagine and I think of um, uh, Star Trek Next Generation uh, was a source of great comfort to me uh, while I did not actually have friends in real life, I uh, I totally imagined myself on the Enterprise and yeah. all of the cast being my friends. And I did that with most things that I loved, I think. I, I would imagine myself into those situations. I would imagine myself into The Hobbit. Mm-hmm. I'd imagine myself being useful in some way to these these people in these books that I loved. Um, I was a very, I mean, in, in some ways I was a very lonely kid. Uh, I wasn't, I mean, not that lonely. I had um, I had siblings. Uh, who were y'all younger than me, which is I think mm-hmm. part of it. I always, um, I always wanted a best friend, uh, yeah. and uh, and I, I had a lot of books and things at the time to tell me that, you know, this is what a best friend looks right. like. It's really important for a girl to yeah. have a best friend and stuff. And then eventually I did. Eventually, like I, I did form really really close friendships, and that was great. But definitely, like high school was a bad scene, mm. and grade school yeah. was a bad scene, and also a lot of my close friendships were with people on the internet um mm-hmm. and uh yeah which is somewhat yeah which is like having imaginary yeah. friends right? right um until those magical moments where you get to meet them and mm-hmm. stuff and honestly that was a big part of how i started going to cons was that they were neutral territory on which to meet uh friends i knew from the internet while we were trying to ascertain the fact that neither of us were axe murderers yeah it's always axe murderers. Right? i know it's yes never, i remember that i don't yeah. understand why that's a cultural why, why is it axes as opposed a... to like guns or knives. Surely people are more likely to be killed by guns than they are by axes. Yes. I think so. There must be more guns than axes, yeah. which is a sad yeah. state. Exactly. I don't know why. Like, you can't I, chop I, down a tree with a gun. You no. Know? Do you memorize things? I do. I memorize my poetry. I don't memorize my... Well, no, I memorize poetry. I have twice memorized the first page of a book that I thought was very, very, very beautiful. Um, Which books? This is actually a funny story. Uh, there was a book um, called... Well, I won't tell you what the book was called. There was a book. And okay. the first page was um, so stunningly beautiful. It was about a shining white city by the sea. 
and it was so beautiful that I just I needed to learn it by heart and there were bits about um, it was showing a, a marketplace in this shining white city by the sea and, and it was talking about how you could buy kittens and blue glass beads and things like that and there was a quality of light in in mm. what was being described that I found tremendously beautiful and I really loved it um, and the book in question was called The Book of Flying by Keith Miller the only other time I encountered a book that I had this, that kind of exactly the same reaction to so once again it was quality of light opening page there's so many it, it was like poetry um, and it was just the, the light was what really kept getting me and um, this book was The Stranger in Alondria A Stranger in Alondria mm-hmm. by Sophia Samatar and I read this book and I loved it and I got to the end and there was a bio of Sophia and it said Sophia Samatar is married to novelist Keith Miller and I said what <laughs> and and it turned out that in fact um, they had and I, I wrote to Sophia about this afterwards and went this is super weird because like I, I had mm-hmm. this exact same reaction to the first page of each of your first novels I think it was his first novel I'm not sure actually but of each of your novels and she said that's really funny because we were writing those books at the same time while we were both living in Sudan um, and she said that that's why like the light seemed mm-hmm. like it was the same and I just uh, I was I was just blown away by this that literally I was thinking of the book of flying in in a very specific way mm-hmm. like the, the plots are nothing like right you know, or they're a little bit nah they're not really like but um they they, they both maybe have a slightly picaresque quality mm-hmm. to them but, but um, it's like the light moved yeah with you yeah through some space and i literally read these books like maybe uh i think i read the book of flying when i was 17 and almost 10 years mm. apart almost 10 years okay. apart i read these books you know we talked about pockets on the podcast yeah and there's an element of that that's about passing messages through time and space yeah. in a way that defies rational explanation. Mm-hmm. Uh, rational is one of my least favorite words, yeah. except in, yeah. 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 This is shorthand. Yeah. Um, and I wondered if this is how, like, the magic of stories to you. Do you feel like when you're writing stories or reading stories that there these letters that are being passed back and forth? I do. I do. I, um, I mean, part of the reason I love studying literature is because I feel like you can be alone with these voices from the past and form your own relationship with them and uh, there's a very very beautiful part of a book by Deanna Wynne Jones called The Merlin Conspiracy there's um, a witch at some point who uh, she has this all this lore of this this flower lore um, that she can make into magic and stuff but she is sort of set upon by these villagers who both love her and hate her um, and they they break her hip or something like that to immobilize her so that like they, they make it so that she cannot leave their village and she right. can only serve them yeah. um, and she decides that no one is uh, she, she witches in this world have the capacity to pass their power on and she decides she is not going to give it to anyone in this village and instead what she does is she casts her mind far into the future from her time um, but in that same place and the main characters of this book are these two kids and one of them this girl wanders into that place and it's like and so here she here's the witch in the past and here's mm-hmm. the girl in the future but they're in the same place and because of that she finds her the witch sorry finds this girl and goes you i'm giving you this and she suddenly gets like downloaded into her head this enormous lore of all these flowers and things yeah. and it's magnificent and uh and i i love this book 
uh, I mean, I've forgotten most things about the book except for this thing that struck mm -hmm. me so much. That and the fact that this book resists a, a, a trope that I really hate, uh, which is women losing their memories as soon as they're given any kind of enormous power. Oh, yeah. Which I hate. I or hate it so much. being crazy or somehow. Exactly. Yeah, somehow being mind, crippled. Losing their identity yeah. um, once they receive any kind of power. I hate it so much. Mm -hmm. Um, I was really tense throughout this book, worried that this was going to happen and it never happened, um, in spite of other cataclysmic things that do happen. But anyway, you should read that book. I'm not going to spoil that one. Um, okay. But I feel like literature does that. You can, you can, you feel like you are receiving letters from the past, which is even more wonderful when you're literally reading letters that people have written to each other from the past. Like Coleridge's letters and Keats's letters are stunningly beautiful. Artifact. They're they're like a genre mm -hmm. unto themselves. I think about this a lot too. I think about the little things that you can find here and there. Like the only tattoo I've ever really considered getting is uh, of um, a tree that Tolkien drew that was potentially going to be a, the cover for uh, Tree and Leaf, I think. And um, and he called it the Tree of Amalian. And I just like I I, I was flipping through this in a in a book about Tolkien's art. And I was like, wait, that has my name in it. Uh, and uh, I was reading about it, and unlike basically every other thing that Tolkien ever named in his mythos, mm -hmm. no one could find the origin of why he had chosen to name it this thing. Like there was no linguistic antecedent or thing that he was trying to do um, that that anyone knew of, or his like that his that, that his son knew of, or that his other scholars knew of. Um, and I was so struck by this, it felt like a kind of message, mm -hmm. like, this is just for you, you know, here, I've yeah. put your name in it, Amal Lion, or something like that. Um, my dad, uh, my dad's name is Usama, which means lion. And there's this kind of like, I felt mm -hmm. like there was a lineage there, yeah, yeah. you know? Um, yeah. And I love that. It was just like, you know, it's, it's totally made up. It's like, but I, I, to, to feel like you could be in the right mm -hmm. place at the right moment for the receipt of something from the past. The, the novella that, that Max Gladstone and I have co-written together partakes of a lot of this because it's about uh time traveling super spies who are writing each other letters um it's it's pretty cool i love it very very much mm. and it's very fun um but a big part of that is sort of taking this idea of what happens when you write someone a letter you know you're essentially writing to a future self yeah. right you're writing to mm -hmm. um and once they receive that letter the self that will have written it will already be in the past you know um, we take so much for granted about the instantaneity of communication right now, but the idea that whenever you write a letter, and I try to do this with pockets, right? And with mm -hmm. pockets, the letters that Warda is sending out, she doesn't know who's going to read. And in the moment when she's writing it, she has to conjure an idea of a person um, defined only by the fact that they're going to read this letter. Right. And uh, and I love that. I, I mean, to me, that's what readership is when you're when you're writing anything you don't know who's going to read it you don't know how it's going to affect them mm. though the fact that i've had people come up to me at this con or at other places and and to tell me uh very very movingly of, of how much they were affected by my work how much it means to them and it's astonishing to me so you know i, I write this thing that's just between me and the page mm -hmm. and then it goes out into the world and affects people it's startling yeah, yeah. it's definite magic it is it is So, questionnaire. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. What is your favorite word? Thistle. What is your least favorite word? Blarg. No, smegma. What is your favorite smell? Oh, baking bread and snow melt. 
I'm, these are supposed to be just like quick associated. I can't yes. think about these too long. Right. Okay. No, no. Um, yeah, I have to hold back from asking questions too. Follow up. <laughs> no follow up question. Um, what is your least favorite smell? My superintendent's pot, which is bad <laughs> pot. It's just bad. There's like good pot and then there's terrible farty smelling pot. And this is just bad. Uh, what do you wish you knew more about? Language. What do you wish you knew less about? No, I think I'm, I I just want to know everything. <laughs> what do I wish yeah. I knew less about? Man, that's such a good question. What do I wish I knew less Oh. Yes. Some people's sex lives. I definitely wish I knew less about. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's pretend your life has a soundtrack. Mm. What song is playing at your happiest? <sighs> this is a difficult question to answer, but let me tell you why. The reason is Hamilton. The problem is that when I started listening to Hamilton, it obliterated all other music, which up until that point, I had a very eclectic uh, taste. And when I started listening to Hamilton, it was literally like a disease. I stopped listening to anything else for about a year. And I feel like I'm still getting all of my music Mm -hmm. back. So it's going to take me a second here. What's playing when I'm at my happiest? Great Big C. Oh, which song, though? Uh, Um... Probably consequence free. Okay. Na 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 na. Yeah, probably. What is your favorite kind of story? Of story. Yeah. <sighs> A bedtime story. What is your least favorite kind of story? Mm. <laughs> Grump. <laughs> I just want to say horror, but it's not really a story. Um. My least favorite kind of story. Uh, my least favorite kind of story. My least favorite kind of story has no women in it. Which is funny because my favorite book of all time has no women in it. <laughs> the Hobbit is my favorite book of all time, probably. And there are no women in it, so oh, that yeah. made a liar of myself. Um, but no, mm. no, my least favorite kind of story is a lazy, a lazy story that. A mean story. I don't like mean-spirited stories. Mean-spirited stories I do not like. Hmm. Hmm. Um, So William Faulkner, Mm -hmm. yeah, he had this quote that the only story worth writing was the heart in conflict with itself. Ooh. Um, Which is good. I don't know how many women were in his... Well, actually, I do. Mm -hmm. There are women there. Mm -hmm. Um, But if Faulkner came back from the dead to write your story, Mm -hmm. what I want to know is what that story would be about. Hmm. Uh, so the, in the sense of the heart and conflict with itself. <sighs> um, it would be about someone who's trying to move through the world with a uh, terrible fear of disappointing everyone um, and trying to do things while not disappointing the people who she loves. Probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's a very intimate question. Well, that's true. These are very sneaky, intimate questions. Yeah, they're they're very good questions, but they're also they feel like a spell. They feel like yeah, uh, yeah. I I yeah. I you think of language as magic? Yeah. Yeah, Stories as magic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So that's kind of the idea. I see. Um, I see. 
can find out more about Amal at her website, amalemotar.com, or by following her on Twitter at Tithnai, or Tithnai, I don't really know how to say that. It is spelled T-I-T-H-E-N-A-I. You can find a version of this interview featuring informative footnotes and illustrious illustrations by our very own E.G. Kosh at our website at storylogical.com. While at our website, be sure, if you haven't already, to subscribe to this podcast and check out our past episodes in which we discuss the stories we love and also, more or less, everything ever. Of particular interest, perhaps, two of our past episodes in which we discussed stories by Amal, the sixth episode of our first season in which we discussed pockets, for example, or the first episode of our second season in which we discussed seasons of glass and iron. You can find and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash storylogical. You can follow us on Twitter at storylogical. I'm on Twitter at kuvols, C-U-V-O-L-S. And you can find E.G. Kosh on Twitter at, you guessed it, E.G. Kosh. If you enjoyed this interview and you would like a bit more of our conversation with Amal, including some of her thoughts on Denver the Last Dinosaur and being on panels at WizCon, you can find those extra bits in our latest newsletter. You can subscribe to that newsletter at our website or at tinyletter.com slash storyological. Storylogical is sponsored entirely by our love of short stories. If you want to support us in sharing that love, there are a few ways you can do that. One, you can rate us on iTunes. You'll find a link for that in the show notes. Two, you can share an episode you love on social media and be sure to tell people why you love it. Three, you can pick one person in your life that you think might enjoy our show and tell them, hey, there's this one podcast you might like. Thanks for listening, readers. Happy reading. Have conversations about it and talk about it. So it's not even so much someone saying, oh my gosh, the story is so amazing, you should read it, although that carries a lot of weight. Um, But when people are like, the thing I loved about this story is, you know, Mm -hmm. what makes this story so great is, uh, and that's that's my favorite way of talking about stories or books. Um, And I don't really hear a lot of that. So it was really delightful. I'm really happy that you're doing this. I actually am curious to know how you decided to start it. which is good. I was going to say, you can ask questions. If you like. <laughs> I know some people feel like they can't ask questions, but mm. it's totally fine. And if I decide yeah. that it's time for me to ask questions again, I'll right. switch. Um, see, most of that I will cut. I don't really <laughs> need to explain that. But uh, but maybe if it's funny. Mm. Uh, how did it start? It started because Emma and I really love short stories, and we were thinking about doing a podcast. But those two ideas were in different places in our minds, and we wanted to do something together. Mm-hmm. And we missed Clarion, mm-hmm. which was a thing we did in 2012 yeah. um, that f- was magical. Mm-hmm. And part of the magic is you're surrounded by 17 other people who are, care about stories more than anything. I didn't realize that there were that many in Clarion. I always thought mm. it was a smaller group of like up to 10 or something. I guess yeah. just because those are the groups I see at cons when they're like congregating yeah. per class and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But. Yeah, we usually don't uh, <laughs> assemble en masse. Right. Not usually. Like Though Clarion we did, Voltron. 